The following program uses what are sometimes called four-letter words, though in this case they're actually eight letters and perhaps a seven-letter gerund. It's Wednesday, February 23rd, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Now, I've never run a political campaign, but I think in general you don't want a key, perhaps the key act by your candidate to be explained by this phrase. Instead of helping me sleep, I hallucinated. That's Abby Broyles, who's running for Congress in Oklahoma's 5th Congressional District. She was Oklahoma's Democratic Senate candidate in 2020. She only got 32% of the vote because it is Oklahoma, and she will not win the congressional seat because it is Oklahoma. The 5th is rated as solid Republican and plus 13 Republican by the Cook Political Report. But she also might not win because at a recent sleepover for 12-year-olds, Broyles, a friend of the host, mixed sleep medication and alcohol, and went on an insult and vomit tear. Here is a parent whose daughter was there. The parent's accusatory tweets exposed Slumbergate to all. She starts by speaking of her daughter. She proceeded to tell me that Abby Broyles had been at the house and was very drunk and calling them all MFers and effers this, effer that vomited all over somebody, called somebody acne effer, somebody Hispanic effer, called my daughter judgy effer for not wanting to sleep with a blanket that she cleaned up wine with. I thought scary spice and baby spice were memorable monikers, but judgy effer and acne effer, they also stay with you. Just ask a psychologist. Broyles at first denied all of this, and then, well, She denied it. She says the denial was more like a no, 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 no when asked about it by a website. But eventually, Broyle sat down with local TV station KFOR, where she had been a reporter for many years, and faced the tough questions from beloved avuncular anchor Kevin Ogle. How did you wind up at a slumber party for middle school girls? That's not a typical venue for a candidate who's running for Congress. Well, Kevin, I studied the campaign of Alabama's Judge Roy Moore. He got a lot more votes than I did when he ran for Senate. No, no, no. She explained why she was there, friend of the host, what she imbibed, medication and wine, what she vomited on, shoes, what she vomited in, a hamper, how she's sorry, and what she would like to tell everyone, it isn't me. Kevin had a follow-up. Do you have a problem with any kind of substance, alcohol or anything like that? Do you feel like you do? No. But clearly, yes, clearly, yes. The answer is wine and whatever that sleeping pill was. This is a weird story. I don't think it's a tragic story. Part of me does feel sorry for Abby Broyles. It's not like this is a pattern of behavior that helps her or betrays the public. It's not like she's going to lose her congressional seat because of it. She's never going to gain it in the first place. It just seems to me like an unfortunate thing that happened. Certainly a quirky thing. On the other hand, the reporter who nailed down the story was met with denials, and he says a threat of a lawsuit from Broyles. Can't support that. I hope Broyles apologizes to the girls and all the actual people she may have hurt. Actual people, not internet people. And we can all have forgiveness without an ambient chaser. On the show today, I spiel about a decision by a Republican president who didn't understand Putin and Russia, thereby sowing the seeds of war, might not be the Republican president you're thinking of. It's not Calvin Coolidge, I'll say that. But first, I, India Tusi, is a professor at Indiana University's Maurer School of Law and the Kinsley Institute. So that means sex and the law overlapping. Where? Well, one of the areas is 
prostitution or sex work. Professor Tusi studied how the South African police regulate sex work. The findings have applications in U.S. law, but are also fascinating in their own right. India Tusi, up next. Sex work in South Africa is perhaps not the bread and butter of the topics that we cover on this show, but I read a book about it by a researcher who did fascinating work. There are applications to America, and it's also one of those things where you just want to hear about the researcher herself, her motivations, her experiences that are hinted at in the book. The name of the book is Policing Bodies, Law, Sex Work, and Desire in Johannesburg. Johannesburg. Joe Berg, I think they would say. I, India Tusi, is the author. She's a professor of law at Indiana University at Bloomington's Maurer School of Law. Hello. Thanks for being on The Gist. Thanks for having me. So you were in South Africa, studying South Africa about a decade ago. Is that right? Well, I was in South Africa about a decade ago, the first time I went out there. And I started my research around 2012, continued to about 2015, 2016, on and off. And while I was there, we had actually visited the Constitutional Court, which is like South Africa's Supreme Court. And, you know, after that visit, I just knew, you know, I want to get back to South Africa. And I thought clerking at the Constitutional Court was one way to get back. And I was able to get that clerkship. And even after doing the clerkship, I wanted to spend more time and decided to do research around policing there. How many clerks in the South African Supreme Court are not South African or American? Um, actually, there, there are a number of them. Um, there's this um, really well-developed program for international clerks. You know, international clerks actually don't get paid, though. So you come with outside funding. But a lot of people are interested in South Africa in particular because, you know, the constitution of South Africa is actually pretty progressive. They openly embrace, like, human rights, um, socioeconomic rights, like the right to housing, the right to education. So a lot of people are interested in, like, studying, you know, human rights in South Africa. And so there are a lot of um, foreign clerks that end up um, in the constitutional court there. Yeah, that's exactly why, well, one of the reasons, but foremost among them, why I'm fascinated by South Africa, because it's a country where intention and actuality sometimes clash. And the intentions, the post-apartheid intentions of South Africa are wonderful. And as you know, you read the Constitution, everyone's rights are enshrined there. And they're, I think, the first constitution in the world to directly address LGBT rights, And which is not to say that, that those rights aren't implied in other constitutions, but they're directly in there. And even the flag of South Africa is designed to reflect the, you know, multi-ethnicities uh, of their society. But then the reality of South Africa, the reality often uh, trails the aspirations of the Constitution. And of course, they've uh, suffered or the country was under years and years of colonial power. And then at one point, some of the most brutal uh, imposition of apartheid and colonial rule in the world. So there you have it. And I think I didn't think about it, but you're right. I mean, prostitution is is or sex work 
depending on if you take a police or sex worker's perspective, is definitely the same kind of area where the actuality and the intention are two different things. So it does seem fascinating to me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, you see that in South Africa, you see in the States too, right, where people can have great aspirations, intentions in terms of, you know, what the law is going to do. If we embrace new reforms, if we embrace human rights, that will fix whatever issues we have. But, you know, part of what you see in South Africa is that that legacy of apartheid, that legacy of colonialism is still reflected in South African society. So you do have progress since apartheid ended. Howard, you do still see some of the lingering effects of it. So if this were a movie, I'll help you punch it up into movie form. Let's start with an arresting scene, the before the title credits. And there you are with a group of sex workers, but you've also had dealings with the police. And a female officer is threatening to slap cuffs on you. And uh, I'll give a little hint. You're contemplating making your escape while in the guise of a researcher. Set the scene. What brings you there and what's going on? I was doing research with both the police and with sex workers, focused on the issue of how the policing of sex work was occurring in Johannesburg. And during this period of time, the police decided that they were going to start targeting sex work clients and arresting the clients and enforcing prostitution statutes against them. And so there was this one evening where I got a bunch of phone calls from sex workers telling me, you know, they were trapped in this situation. The police weren't letting them go and that they were asking for my assistance. They knew I was doing research, that I knew police officers, I knew them, and if I could come out to the research site. And so I went because, you know, at this point I had developed these deep relationships. The line between researcher and participant versus friends was starting to blur. It was the middle of the night. I think it was maybe 12. And I went out to this um, location, which was this parking lot not too far from me. I get to the parking lot and the officers have these clients and these sex workers just kind of trapped it, in the Let me interrupt. Lot. These particular police, because you have had many interactions with police. Any, did you know any of them in your capacity as a researcher? No, I didn't know any of these officers. Actually, the officers that were there were from a different location. So it was really unusual that they came here. But it seemed that they knew that this was an area where there was sex work activity and that if they focus on the clients and maybe even solicit bribes from the clients, that they might be able to profit from that. And so, you know, the sex workers are there. I interviewed them maybe for an hour and maybe I spoke to a couple of the clients and I said to the officer, you know, after doing this, okay, I'm, I'm going to leave now. You know, the officer said to me, I'm going to have this person arrest you and handcuff you um, if you keep asking me questions, right? You need to stay back. And, you know, that was enough for me to kind of back off a little bit, like, okay, this is getting a little crazy. Like, what what is really going on here? And so the female officer, you know, comes toward me saying that she was going to put handcuffs on me. And I said, no, it's fine. I'll, you know, just kind of stay still. I'll be fine right over here. No, I'm fine. Thanks. Th thanks. Thanks for the offer. I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I appreciate that offer for handcuffs. I'm sure they are very comfortable, but I'm okay. Like, I, I'm, I, I, I don't need them. And so as they're engaged in conversations with the clients, they get a little distracted for a while, kind of slowly inch my way back to this fence. I got to the fence. I just quickly hopped over the fence and I kind of kind of scurried through the parking lot really quickly. Um, I think a couple of the sex workers saw me and was just like, go, 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 go. And I, I knew the area. So go through some back streets and made it back to my home safely. And, you know, that situation, you know, put so much in perspective for me in terms of, you know, just how 
difficult doing this type of research can be for one. Um, just the the violence that can come when you're interacting with certain officers, right? The fact that they were willing to arrest me with no basis, but knowing that just the act of arresting someone, even a night in jail, can be traumatic. Um, so it, it, I was glad that I made my way out of there. But the next morning, all morning, I was getting these phone calls from the sex workers who I'd been working with. You know, at this time, maybe it was at least like 10, maybe up to a dozen sex workers who contacted me saying, you know, they had no money, that they were really difficult, that they don't know what they're going to do. The police keep targeting their clients. It was creating all these violent situations and all of this, right? And so it ended up, you know, bringing more harm, although, you know, presumably the officers are supposed to be protecting people. Now, as you are escaping uh, police detention, illegal police detention, and your hands are bleeding as you climb over a fence, do you at any point say, damn it, I'm a clerk of of the Supreme Court. This should not be happening. <laughs> you know, I, I, I should have thought something like that. You know, if I were a little more sensible, you know, maybe I shouldn't even gone out in the middle of the night and been like, I'll speak to you guys in the morning. But, you know, I, I felt some loyalty, you know, and they were in the situation. And so it, it didn't really occur to me that, you know, because of my background, like this shouldn't happen to me. It was more like, the fact that this could even happen to me means that even worse is happening to other people, right? The fact that I can have, you know, some platform at, at some point and the fact they know that, you know, I may be connected to university, so maybe I'd have some connections and they're still doing this shows me just how rampant um, this type of practices probably are. So if there was one through line in your book, I mean, at least the conclusion that I drew, it's that by not criminalizing or by lightly criminalizing an ill-defined criminalization, it's just that. It's ill-defined. It doesn't really allow clarity and it uh, encourages, you know, all sorts of nefarious activity um, on the part of the police and I guess society. And sometimes in ways we wouldn't expect, like we probably would expect the bribes and we probably would expect uh, to to be frank, sexual assault of the sex workers by police acting with impunity. But then there are also the issues of, you know, once the law defines a sex worker as a criminal, when the sex worker comes to the police with an actual criminal matter, the police say, well, it would be like me working hand in hand with a drug dealer. You know, I can't really do, I can't give, even if I wanted to, the sex worker the full protection of the law simply because they're violating the law technically. No, absolutely. I mean, there's that stigma that comes with it. I mean, the law is deeming them to be criminals, right? And so how can they go to the law to seek some sort of protection or to enforce their rights, even for basic things like if a client didn't pay, right? And I spoke to some of the officers about how do you respond in those situations? Some of them felt comfortable kind of mediating the situation um, indirectly, but some said, well, you know, it's illegal activity, right? And so it creates the situation where they're quite vulnerable. Um, and, you know, what was interesting from my research, when the police decided to take their approach in one of my research sites of decriminalization, so treating it like the sex worker conduct can be decriminalized as well as the client conduct can be decriminalized, more sex workers reported to me that they felt comfortable going to police when they had dangerous situations. More of them would report those situations, more of them would actually be able to screen their clients and not feel like they had to hide from police at the same time and just take whatever client was there. 
Um, but once the police started targeting the clients, there was just these really risky situations where there was no screening, right? They were less able to cooperate with each other and say, hey, don't go to that car. That person is like not the right person or we saw him last week and he's a real problem. Instead, they were just hiding from the police. But the police, when you talk to them and actually there are surveys in your book, what were their attitudes on if sex work should be or what they would call prostitution uh, should be illegal at all? Well, well, what was interesting was that most of the officers, pretty much all of the officers that I spoke with, thought it should be decriminalized. Like, m- almost all of them said that it's not working well, that they're not really doing a good job at it, which was interesting to me that they conceded that, and that they thought that it should be decriminalized. And some of the officers actually had respect and said, you know, some of these people are actually, um, you know, providing for themselves and their families, or they've actually, you know, no situations where people were actually able to get an education and then move on from it. And so most of the officers actually had pretty progressive views about sex work, which was something I found interesting because they were still policing it. They were still enforcing it, but they thought it should be decriminalized, which was, you know, just an interesting finding. When I would picture in my mind the scene where uh, a bunch of sex workers are being detained and a bunch of police are deciding whether to put handcuffs on them or you, you know, I defaulted to what would be the case in America, which is mostly women of color being detained and mostly white police officers. But then I realized it was South Africa. So what was it wouldn't be like that. What was the racial dimension? Yeah. So most of the sex workers I interacted with were black women. So it was black women who were being detained. The officers um, that evening, there was, I think, one black officer. There was an Indian officer. Um, and maybe what might be described in the South African context as a colored officer, so like mixed race, but distinct ethnicity um, in South Africa who were participating in in it. So it's interesting because the police force in South Africa is actually um, pretty diversified, is really diverse, Um, and yet some of the legacy of apartheid still um, continues and persists within that police force. So what of all that you learned, what would apply to the United States and what really doesn't? Well, you know, the U.S. and South Africa obviously have distinct histories, but they do have some similarities. They both were um, settler colonies. They both have had racial apartheid, so state-sanctioned racial segregation. And I think that those are important uh, similarities between them. And they both struggle in terms of, you know, how to manage their police forces, how to ensure that policing is not um, perpetuating inequalities in society. And they both, you know, to different degrees, been committed to addressing these issues. Now, some of the insights that I think can come from South Africa that can be brought to um, the U.S. or at least examined in the context of the U.S. is, you know, what I mentioned before in terms of whether it's diversifying a police force is enough to ensure that policing is going to be humane or respect the the dignity of the people being police. Um, You know, the South African context suggests that actually that's not going to do it, that, you know, even if you diversify, that you can have these lingering issues. You know, I, I think another insight that can come from South Africa is that, you know, even when you change all the laws and you, you embrace human rights, they have a human rights manual. The police force changed its name. It used to be South African police was the name of the South African police during apartheid. And they changed their name at the end of apartheid to South African police service. 
And the reason they embraced service was to indicate that now the police would be serving the people. They were no longer the apartheid police and they were moving on and moving forward. But even despite that, the legacy of apartheid is, is still part of that, despite these, you know, really kind of visual and these grand um, gestures toward a new police force. So it says that, you know, even if you reform the police, you could still have the same issues existing, that there are there is something about policing, there is something about, you know, using violence to, you know, manage different hierarchies that, you know, perpetuates and, and can lead to these inequalities in society. The name of the book is Policing Bodies, Law, Sex Work, and Desire in Johannesburg. The author is I, India Tusi, who is a professor of law at Indiana University at Bloomington's Maurer School of Law. Great talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. And now the spiel. How did we get to the Russian invasion incursion, clearly more than an excursion, into Ukraine? Well, you could start in the 1600s, as Putin did in his address to his nation. Since time immemorial, the people living in the southwest of what has historically been Russia have called themselves Russians and Orthodox Christians. This was the case before the 17th century, okay? I'm going to say too far back. Vlad, and perhaps you could be overly myopic when seeking the question of where did it start and concentrate just on the diplomacy of the last couple of days or weeks. But a good starting point, I think, an inflection point indeed, was in 2008, Bucharest, Romania. At the time, 2008, Putin was in his second term as president before he took his little jaunt side jaunt as prime minister. Then he rewrote the constitution, serving again as president. Putin was seen as not an out-and-out enemy of the West, but certainly an international obstacle to the aims of NATO and countries like Germany, France, the UK, the United States. Putin was a malefactor, but he seemed satisfied with being one on a hemispheric basis. But there was a push to include more countries into NATO, including, it was hoped by some, Georgia and Ukraine. That was the backdrop before the fateful 2008 NATO summit in Bucharest, which the AP described this way. NATO Secretary General Jaap Jakub Skeffer says the decisions taken by this summit will affect the future of the alliance. Gada yap to yap He was full of yap that Ukraine would soon be a NATO member. But I stand to be corrected if the sentence we agreed today that these countries in the text, read Ukraine and Georgia, will become members of, of, of NATO, leaves, leaves a shimmer of a doubt. Not, not, not in my opinion. But much of NATO thought the senses of Yaptehoop had flown the coop. Germany, France, Italy, they made it quite well known that even talking about Ukraine entering NATO was a bad idea, an unnecessary thumb in the eye to the Russians. It was also an unrealistic goal. Ukraine wasn't nearly ready to qualify for membership. Strategically, also folly, what could Ukraine bring to the rest of the signatory states other than risk? 
to obligate all of NATO to defend this expansive, poor, continuously corrupt, fledgling, quasi, but not really, and soon really not really democracy. It failed the cost-benefit analysis. To Germany's Angela Merkel, for instance, prudently avoiding provocation was an easy call. She was there at the summit, and you could tell she wasn't happy with what was going on. Because what was going on was that Ukraine, while not offered membership or a path to membership, was dangled the promise of eventual membership. Why? Mainly, it was because of one person. Not the titular head of NATO, Yaptehoop, did not throw Angela for a loop. No. The big problem was this guy. Here in Bucharest, we must make clear that NATO welcomes the aspirations of Georgia and Ukraine for their membership in NATO and offers them a clear path forward to meet that goal. George W. Bush, binary thinker, hater of evildoers, international short-term strategist. He was in his last year in office, and he very clearly thought that Ukraine and NATO represented freedom. And boy, did that guy love freedom. So he pressed the issue, which the wiser countries in NATO would have been happy to avoid. No firm timetable or set of conditions was set which may have actually prompted Ukraine to rise to the occasion, if it were. But promises were made, hopes were raised, and they were raised as a challenge to Putin, who was there at the summit. Not, of course, as an official attendee, but he was there. It was a blow to Russia, but clearly not a fatal one. You know, I've been watching bear hunting videos lately, and it turns out the craziest thing happens when you wound a bear. 100% of those bears are going to try to kill you, (laughs) okay? It's just the way it is. That's how Google it. I did Google it. I found French political scientist Jacques Rupnik telling the Times today, quote, it was an absolutely disastrous decision. Either you say you will take Ukraine in by a certain date, assuming certain conditions are met, or you say Ukraine's place is not in NATO and we will devise an alternative strategic framework for the neighborhood between NATO and Russia. This was the worst of both worlds. Well, certainly set the stage for potentially the worst conflict in the world. It heedlessly and needlessly wounded the bear, which guarantees that lives will be put at risk. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the assistant producer effer. Joel Patterson is the just senior effer. Michelle Pasca is Peachfish Productions logistics effer. The gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, check out advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperu depperu duperu. And thanks for listening. You effers. <laughs> <laughs>